Good evening and welcome to the University of Sydney in the Sydney Ideas Public Programme. Uh, to begin our evening together, on behalf of us all, including our visitor, Lionel Shriver, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. As many of you know, the University of Sydney is built on Gadigal ancestral lands, and as we think about the cultural transmission that novel writing and novel reading represent, we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. A big thanks also to HarperCollins Publishers for working with the University to make Lionel Shriver available for this public forum. I just want to say a few words about the format for this evening. Obviously, as you can see, it's a conversation with Lionel hosted by Kate Lilly, followed by an audience question and answer session. You'll see we've got a couple of mics on stands in the two aisles there. So please, in question time, just come down to the microphone um, with your questions. We're recording the event um, for later podcast on the university website site, and it also helps other audience members be able to hear the question uh, clearly. After the event, Lionel will be signing her books at the Glee Book stall in the foyer upstairs. So there's that as well. It's a real pleasure to host Lionel at the University of Sydney. We're passionate about English literature and all its manifestations. And luckily for me, you don't just have to take my word for it. Just this week, with the release of the 2014 QS University World Rankings, the Department of English at the University of Sydney was confirmed as the 19th best in the world, and once again, as the best Department of English in Australia. Postgraduate programme in creative writing is an important part of our high-ranking status, so it's a pleasure for me to introduce the director of that programme, Associate Professor Kate Lilly. Although I know her pretty well, she's actually hard to introduce. She's got so many areas of expertise, she's almost like a department in herself. <laughs> she's a highly regarded scholar of early modern women's writing. She's got a strong sideline in Australian literary studies and film studies, and as well, she's an acclaimed award-winning poet. I find her a lovely person to talk to. I find Lionel a lovely person to read, and I'm confident that we'll have fun listening to them in conversation this evening. Thank you, Anna-Marie, and I find you a lovely person to talk to and to read also. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, welcome to you all. Great to see you here. Um, I'm sure you're all well aware of Lionel's work and I and I hope you know you're all thinking of what you're going to ask her in the last half hour so we've got a good decent time for the in, for the questions um, Lionel's in Australia on her fourth Australian book tour is that right yes um, yes and um, no the the tone of voice was not <laughs> don't take it wrong <laughs> I live in London, and it has to do with the air <laughs> trip. Um, so, you know, she's, she's had this strange experience of Australia in two-week bursts or something like that, four times, um, travelling with her publicist. She was saying that publicists are her friends in Australia. Um, and this time, she's here uh, to support her most recent book, her 12th novel, Big Brother, which came out last year. Uh, so a lot of uh, our conversation today will be around that 
most recent book of hers, though we'll also, you know, range uh, elsewhere. Um, and those of you who haven't already read Big Brother, you have the chance to, you know, run up the stairs and buy it immediately mm. and read it, you know, st straight after hearing Lionel read from it and talk about it. So I thought um, we would start, Lionel, with how you, how you came to be a novelist. You've said that uh, you, I set out to be a novelist from childhood, that you knew really, mm. really young, and so I thought it would be really interesting to hear how that happened and, and what you did about it and what, sort of, what, what you were reading, what was happening to you that made you... Bartholomew and the Ublek. <laughs> That's what I was reading. What is that? Curio that uh, uh, Dr. Seuss. Right. Right. And the Curious George books. Right. And where the Wild Things Are. I read what everybody else did. Right? Babar. Um, not everybody reads those things and thinks, I'm going to be a novelist. Uh, I, I wanted to write as I learned to read. And maybe it just makes me greedy, but I, I, I just thought, that's cool, I want to do that. And I think it's, it's almost that simple. Uh, by the time I was seven, I was saying that I wanted to be a writer. Um, in fact, I don't remember how old I was, maybe, maybe eight or nine. I told this to a, a friend of my parents who was visiting and I said that I wanted to write books and, and I wanted to illustrate my own books. And he stooped down and he said, oh really, but won't you want to write books for grown-ups? And I never really thought about it before. I wasn't sure that appealed to me actually. And I said, I guess. And he said, but books for grown-ups? don't have pictures. He was a real party pooper. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not Come round to my second novel, Checker and the Derailers, and I, I'm a bit of an amateur artist. I like to draw. I did some illustrations of my characters, and I had them reduced and published at the beginning of every chapter. And I proved that motherfucker wrong. <laughs> well, you said that you're a determined character. And um, in, that, in that same uh, interview from which I, you know, with which I started, you went on to say, um, um, when I go for a nine-mile run, I run nine miles and not a yard less, because that's what I told myself at the outset. I would run... Um, so, what do you call your career edict at seven? Um, you know, set the. Actually, I think that's that's a good connection because uh, it does have to do with a certain bloody-mindedness. I'm, I've been uh, asked more than once what kept me going uh, during the long period of my career where I was publishing, but I wasn't really getting any anywhere in terms of building an audience. I was roundly ignored and. You know, how did I keep going? And, the, and honestly, the answer is, is spite. It's like, I, <laughs> screw you. I said I was going to do this, and I'm going to do it. And, and it's, it is similar to that kind of, admittedly, rather arbitrary athletic 
ambition. And anyone who runs or, or swims or probably understands that you have a set goal and you, you make that, you always decide before you start that that's what you're going to do. And barring, you know, cardiac arrest, that is what you're going to do. Twelve novels, big novels at that, you know, there's a hell of a lot of work in that and written over. So your first one published in 86. So from 86 to 2013, to publish 12 novels, that's extremely prolific. Um, I, mean, I don't actually think of myself as very prolific and my productivity has gone down. So <laughs> I think it's, you're quite a taskmaster. But, but, um, <laughs> but that's because I'm doing this sort of thing all the time. Can you blame me? You're such a lovely audience. Um, my, my sense is that, you know, from the, from the start, you got pretty good reviews. Um, there, there was I always did, some and it was a real lesson, because when I f w first started publishing, I thought the whole point was to get those good reviews. Mm. And I think that's the kind of thing you tend to think when you, um, you come out of a, you know, you've been in school and you, you get a university education and you honestly still believe that the idea is to get an A on your homework. And, and so when I got my first good reviews, I, th I thought I had it made because that, that was the point, wasn't it? And I swear it must have taken me at least three books to get the message that it was really about flogging a product. And that... I mean, I'm sorry, I, don't, I hope I don't mm. sound, sound cynical. That is, that is, it is a business. It, it is a product. It is a business. You, I am selling a product uh, through a company. And if I don't manage to sell enough of the product, I have failed. And I am a, a drag on the balance sheet of my, my publisher. And it's very disheartening when you figure out that that's, that is the real game. Um, and the, that said... Once you actually do, if not make money, at least uh, make it in, in even. You know, you didn't, you didn't cost anything. It's a big relief. It's a big emotional relief to, to not feel like a financial burden on the people who have supported you. Mm -hmm. And that, I would say that, that in some ways that's the best thing uh, about being more successful now is, is not basically walking around feeling guilty that I took money under, under false pretenses. Um, you, so I guess you've made a living until the last... I mean, so as everyone probably knows, and I guess probably everyone in the room has read um, Kevin, as it gets called for short, um, that was the book that sort of changed, changed your fortunes, mm -hmm. in, your commercial fortunes, and, and sort of ramped up your critical fortunes as well, I guess winning the Orange Prize, but as Lionel said to me, you know, when we were talking beforehand, the book was already a bestseller before it won the Orange Prize, so that was just a kind of sort of acceleration and, you know, just kind of value added. Um, but up until that time, I guess, and perhaps I don't know whether how significant it might be even still, journalism is what's sort of been your bread and butter? Yes, uh... And I, I mean, I, I wrote a fair bit of journalism just to be able to pay the rent for, yeah. for a while because uh, my books were no longer being published in the United States and I was living on these sad little UK advances. But that, that's ended up, uh, 
having been, however, inadvertently a, a good decision, it's been a useful skill to develop. I think in some ways it's been good for my writing. Uh, even doing things like uh, writing to length and filing on time, because with the newspapers you don't faff about. They have a little square waiting for you. It has to fit geometrically within that space. And uh, just as an exercise, it, it, it's very useful. It's a, it's a discipline. It also, that whole thing of, of filing uh, on, on a particular date is good for a fiction writer because fiction writers, our, our due dates can be very vague and sometimes they're not even in the contract and it, it, it means that you, you can indulge all kinds of procrastination and, and preciousness about the work which is you're always fiddling with and I, there's a point at which even with a, a novel you need to say okay enough is enough yes it could get a little bit better but you're not going to be working on this for another five years just get it out of the door yeah. And I, I think that, that doing the journalism has been good, good for that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when you were talking about uh, when Kevin won the Orange Prize and, and hit the bestseller list, something did happen to my career and my profile. But I'll tell you, it was more proactive than that. It wasn't just this perfect storm of outside forces. Mm -hmm. Because... Of, uh, for at least another, for the, the next two or three years, but especially right around that time, I accepted every assignment that came my way. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to do that now, uh, but I think it, it, that helped catalyze, if that's a word, um, the, the, my raised profile, that I was very aggressive about getting my name around. Right. I mean, and then, and, you know, and obviously that all worked very well. And, and I, you know, I've been reading your columns in The Guardian. Some of you will have read them that, you know, you can read them online if you haven't. They're really, they're really fantastic. They're, they're great. Thank you. They're great. No, you're, you're a really fantastic columnist. And they're these wonderfully funny, sort of lacerating, um, often... Uh, economical takedowns. They're just these short, kind of short blasts, they tend to be. <laughs> They're like a kind of hit, you know, and then it's done, right. Powered you know. by rage. And they often say at the bottom things, you know, what else has Lionel been doing um, watching reruns of The Sopranos? And I tried to click on that to find, you know, what Lionel had written about reruns of The Sopranos, but that didn't take me to one. So, you know, you get this appetite for... Maybe you got the reruns of The Sopranos. That's a good link. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and I think, so, and some of those lacerating columns have um, have taken aim at uh, literary, the, the world of publishing, literary publishing, mm -hmm. um, publishing of literary fiction, um, particularly in in America. I think. And if you'll just let me read a short quote, um, Lionel wrote a column in September 2010 with the heading. I write a nasty book, good heading, um, which goes on to talk about um, these dainty feminine, feminine covers, uh, sort of generic feminine covers mm. given to books by female novelists that are in no way appropriate. Um, but it starts off um, very sarcastically talking about the outsized admiration 
lavished on Jonathan Franzen's then new book, Freedom, which at that point Lionel hadn't read. It was still in I still haven't read it. Okay, okay. Um, anyway, she writes this. A female novelist would never enjoy a Franzen-scale frenzy of adulation in America, which maintains two distinct tiers in fiction. The heavy hitters, cultural icons, who often produce great doorstop novels that no one ever argues are under-edited. That's a kind of you know, embedded whack. Um, <laughs> exclusively male. Sense a little resentment. Not from me, no. <laughs> no, I'm right there. No, I mean in that text. Yeah. Oh, yours, yeah, right, yeah. okay, yeah. Um, rising literati like Rick Moody and Jonathan Franzen efficiently assume the spots left unoccupied by John Updike and Norman Mailer like a rigged game of musical chairs. Then there's everybody else, including a raft of female writers who keep the publishing industry afloat by selling to its primary consumers, women. And, you know, part of this change in your fortunes was through winning the Orange Prize, mm. which is a prize, as you know, I'm sure you know, specifically for a novel by a woman. Um, and, you know, these... Um, like the new prize here in Australia, the same sort oh, you of have one. new prize modelled on that, mm -hmm. the Stella, um, is, um, you know, controversial. But I wonder if you, you know, might just talk a bit about this whole sort of territory of the, the sexual politics of publishing and the kind of... Uh, and, and, you know, you do say specifically in that um, column, you know, you're talking about America, and so you yes. might want to, I don't know, if you want to sort of distinguish what happens in England where you mainly live um, or, you know... I don't think it's quite as bad in the UK, but it's still there. Mm. Uh, for some reason in the United States, that uh, sexual divide in the literary world is drastic. Mm. Um, I'm a little a bit of an odd choice for the... Orange Prize, and I feel ambivalent about having won that prize and not any other, uh, though I've been so shortlisted for several others. I certainly wish the Orange and its sister prizes weren't necessary, and we can certainly argue till the cows come home whether they are necessary or ever have been. I think you can certainly make a good case uh, if you look at the... Uh, the statistics on who has won the major literary prizes in the U.S. and the U.K. and even internationally, like the Nobel Prize for Literature, which has an especially egregious history on on awarding uh, the the prize to women. So, if you look at most of the history, it, it's just overwhelming that these prizes have gone to men. More recently, the statistics have uh, been going more the other, if anything, more the other direction as if trying to make up for uh, past discrimination. And when it, you know, when Hillary Mantel wins the Booker twice, then it, it makes it harder to, or seemingly harder to justify prizes like the Orange. Um, I don't think the Orange does any harm. It, 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 it I know about that prize that it's been particularly good at selling books. And these days, how can you fault any organization that manages to get people to buy books? Uh, 
But if I were going to pick which prize I would win, as it was, you know, could, could easily be the only prize I ever win, I wouldn't want it to be that one, right? In spite of the fact that I've gone to bat for it any number of times, I, I would rather win a prize uh, and beat out a bunch of men, you know? much more satisfying. And one of the fr frustrations of this whole phenomenon and even this whole discussion is that what I, what I value about reading and, and writing, uh, especially fiction, is the way in which you, it allows you to transcend gender. Not only gender, of course, but also race, nationality, religious affiliation, it, you can get out of yourself and you can escape the confines of your own identity. And you can especially escape the, the confines that were, were put upon you from birth. You know, I can't help it that I was born in the United States, though I'm tired of apologizing. <laughs> um, and, and I've stopped. Uh, and I can't help it that I was born in this body. I can't help being five foot two, damn it. But I can read about tall people. <laughs> and I can even pretend to be a tall person. And I can pretend to be a man. And I can read books that are about men and told from the male point of view. And I, I really find that a tremendous release. And I admire other writers who also transcend gender. Men who write persuasively about being women. And I think one of the big discoveries in fiction writing is that it's not that hard to transcend gender because when you're writing from the inside, it's not that different. And the people who screw up uh, writing about the opposite sex are trying too hard. They think it's a completely different world, and it's not. So since that's what I really love about fiction and that, that sense of release from all the things about myself that I, I didn't necessarily choose for, for literature itself to get constantly tangled up in this, you know, female writer versus male writer is, is unfortunate. That said, you know, the, the, in the United States, the, the divide is so stark, especially on this whole thing of who, who's the mover and shaker, who's the voice of the age, uh, who writes the really big books that get all the attention. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid it's not subtle. And mm -hmm. it's as, it, it is, uh, there's, there's a little litany of um, who, the real, who the famous writers are at any given time. And you'll find even women, I, I'll, I'll do it myself. If I rattle them off, they're going to be almost all men. You know, oh, who's, who are the big, what's the big generation that's slowly dying? You know, Philip Roth, uh, Saul Bellow, John Very Updike. slowly dying. A little too slowly. <laughs> <laughs> and when I'm, when I'm in, uh, in events and people ask me who my favorite writers are, I have to remember... Don't make it all male. I think you often say Edith Wharton. I know, she but comes too up much. In the I mean, it's a, it's a, there are two or three female writers that I try to remember to include, but it shouldn't be that hard. And I don't think it's just that female writers have not made an impact when I was reading their books. I think, I think it's that 
there's this little list that gets recited, that everyone recites, that you hear all the time, and you reach for this litany, you know, of, of the people who are really important. Not necessarily in the same way that you reach for, oh, what are my personal favorite books? Hmm. I, was, I was interested to read, you know, it's very, it's pretty recent, I think, I can't quite remember the date, but it's, you know, in the last year, in the millions, I don't know if you've read this um, Piece, is that the article that says you? that I'm the most important writer in it America? Is. Have you read that? Uh, more than once. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and compares you, it compares you to Melville. Yeah, um, boy, that, that was a real compliment because I love Melville. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I noted that that stood out amongst the ones. I, I mean, there, you know, I've read many very complimentary things about you, but this was the one saying, you know, you're it. You're kind of, you know, the... the the great American Well, in some ways it was striking hands. how striking that was. I mean, sure. it came across as an absolutely extraordinary submission in, in the public square. It was like, what do you mean? I've never heard of her. Uh, and, and yet, if I have many male equivalents in terms of you know, my general level of accomplishment. If you mm. made that submission about those people, it wouldn't have seemed so weird. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you just don't get any publication submitting that any female author is the best writer in the United States. It doesn't happen. Hmm. Um, I, th I think one of the things about, you know, this goes back to your journalism too, that, you know, that your journalistic experience and, and sort of disposition, I guess, it, the thing that makes you, you know, a good journalist also, also you know, is well suited to the kinds of novels you write, these realist Novels. Yes, and they're social, most, for the most part, socially engaged. Yeah, very socially often engaged. Often po also politically engaged and, and, books. And to that... What women are supposed to not write about. Yeah, and I mean, and when I first read you, without having then read any of the, you know, sort of, you know, the reviews and stuff, um, George Eliot was what came to my mind, mm -hmm. and, and then I see that that has cropped up and that you have also commented on... You know, that, given the nod to that. Um, but, um, and also I think that name. No, the name. The thing. name sounds yeah. like your name. You know, it's the same kind of name, George Eliot, Lionel Shriver. Um, and the fact that, you know, you took, you took Lionel as your, as your name at 15. Um, so I think it's kind of turned you into a, you know, a sort of the inheritor of the 19th century um, big social novel by women right there. Right. You know. But that's a mantle that I'll happily wear. Yeah. Well, it's a good mantle. Mm -hmm. um, but I was, um, I was struck, you know, at how information-rich, if you like, mm. your novels are. I mean, they're both very argumentative, I think, very sort of, um, you know, and reading your columns and reading the novels, there's quite a bit of sort of, no, I mean, not direct crossover, but, you know, as you say, it's the same person. You know, mm -hmm. you're there mm -hmm. at the back of it all, doing it all. But, um, but the novels themselves uh, strike me as very, um, yeah, very, very, very strongly sort of uh, engaged with ideas and, um, you know, social problems. Um, and I noticed when I looked, you know, I looked to see, as an academic does, mm. what uh, academic writing there had been on you. And there's, mm. there's very little yet that definitely it'll, it'll happen. Um, though you crop up in sort of, you know, among groups of, um, in realist, you know, things interested in realism and stuff. 
Um, but you, there's heaps and heaps of stuff citing you in clinical literature. You probably, clinical literature? Yeah, you mean like uh, psychologists? Yeah, psychologists. Yes. And, and then also in demographers. Um, in, um, demographers love me. Yeah. I, mean, it's I a, love them too, it's and unusual. I think that's why. You know, demographers just don't get a lot of love. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I thought that was pretty interesting because most of the books that those kinds of um, writers take up, those kinds of, you know, specialists take up, tend to be uh, autobiographical. Mm. They don't actually tend to be novels. I mean, to some extent, but, you know. Um, and, you know, I guess this brings us to Big Brother, mm -hmm. the book that you're here promoting. Um, not doing a very good job of it so far. Tonight? Yes. I think it all goes to it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I have trouble keeping time. No, the, no, um, the trouble is that, you know, when you talk about uh, your most recent novel, Enough, you're so relieved to talk about anything else. So <laughs> I, I could actually go this entire hour and a half and we can just talk about anything but yeah. my new book. But well, my I, publicist would be mad at me. I said to Lana, would she like to read from Kevin? No. <laughs> she said she'd like to bury it in a hole. <laughs> um, and so maybe now is a good time for, sure. you, to, for you to read okay. from, from Big Brother. Yeah. Well, I should um, explain the setup first. I mean, how, how many of you have already read Big Brother? Surprisingly, a lot of you. So... I'll keep it brief. Uh, it's about a woman whose uh, older brother comes to visit her in Iowa, and they haven't seen her for, seen each other for about four years, and she looks straight at him at the airport and doesn't recognize him. And that is because he has gained so much weight. So this is my fat book. Now, the brother comes to visit her family for what turns into two months. The section I'm going to read you is near the end of that two months, and I don't know what it's like when you have house guests, but I have trouble f with them for the weekend, and I think two months is a long time. Um, this is made worse by the fact that her husband, Fletcher, uh, is a health nut. He's what she calls a nutritional Nazi. And he's a fitness freak as well. So he run, goes off for hours on his bicycle trying to take three seconds off his time on the same route. It's basically unendurable. Um, and you can imagine that Fletcher and her brother Edison do not get on. And that's an understatement. Uh, for the purposes of understanding this passage, it helps to know that Fletcher is a... Um, custom furniture maker, meaning that he lavishes months at a time on single pieces of furniture that he therefore cannot sell. Uh, anybody who does custom furniture knows what I mean. It takes too much time and you have to charge tens of thousands of dollars to make any money at all, so you don't. Uh, they have a 13-year-old uh, named Cody and this concerns a chair called the, that the family calls the boomerang because it has this line that's kind of like something that has been flung. And uh, 
it's actually one of Fletcher's early pieces, but it, yeah, it, it's the, it's something of a totem for him. It is, in some ways, uh, what he, it's what he resorts to when he's feeling underconfident. You know, it, it's that token of, if you can do that, you can do anything. And I think a lot of artisans or, or artists have that sort of thing in their life. If you can do that, you can do anything. So it is, it's very important to him. <laughs> or I'm not sure how you spell it. A wordless exclamation of torment at a volume I may never before have heard my contained husband reach. Certainly the comic book arg would not do justice to the sound. I dropped the pan I was scrubbing in the sink and rushed to the living room just as Edison slipped out to the patio for a smoke. I was terrified Fletcher had hurt himself. Are you all right? My husband was standing with a sketch pad and whiffling. He didn't seem to be bleeding, but from anyone else, the tight, reedy wheeze in his throat would have emerged as a scream. He was reared back as if from the grisly specter of fresh roadkill. I turned to what Fletcher could not bear looking at, the boomerang. It was, yes, only subtly out of kilter. Three of the supporting back slats no longer swept upwards in the even curves of a rib cage, but suffered from interruptions where they poked the wrong way. The arc of the swooping top rail, which formed the whole flung, soaring sweep of the piece, also jerked at a sudden angle from which a splinter frayed in a material as uncompromising as wood. Subtly out of kilter was the same as, well, completely fucked. Oh, no, I said softly, kneeling to the chair. I examined the slats, fractured unevenly, being laminated, and save for a few shreds, cracked all the way through. The top piece was splintered along a good six inches of rail. With that instinctive ear for sorrow, Cody, Cody had slipped downstairs and joined me. Not the boomerang. As she rested a cheek on its red leather seat, we looked at each other with shared dread. Oh, Dad, I'm so sorry. I love this chair. It's like a member of the family. All my friends think it's awesome. Fletcher was not to be bought off with compliments. I told him not to sit in it. I told him not to sit in any of these pieces. They are designed for normal people. Normal, halfway disciplined halfway intelligent people. It was news to me that Fletcher had banned my brother from his furniture. I had batted away my own misgivings, choosing to trust the robust construction of my husband's wares. 
a faith that spared me the mortification of telling Edison that he couldn't sit where the rest of us did because he was too fat. But you can fix it, can't you, Daddy? We can send the boomerang to the hospital to get well. Cody was mature for 13, and the childishness was a ploy. Are you sure that's what happened? I asked wearily. Did I sleepwalk into the living room with an axe? Have ki the kids been practicing their baseball swings indoors? They don't play baseball. You didn't have anything to do with this, he directed to Cody. Did you? Her eyes panicked. On the spur of the moment, she was having a hard time concocting a plausible scenario whereby it was all her fault. I don't know. I did sit in it yesterday, doing my homework. My laptop is sort of heavy. What in this house, said Fletcher, aside from my frail daughter's six-pound laptop? is sort of heavy. I guess that is the most logical explanation, I said glumly. That son of a bitch didn't even have the integrity to tell me. He left it propped together, slats pulled to, the railing pressed back into place. So I sit down and, whoa! After all these years, think that chair can't bear my weight? Edison, could you come in here for a minute, please? I'd not shouted loudly enough for him to hear on the patio unless he was keeping an ear cocked for this very summons. The door slid and clicked, and it took too long for Edison to waddle into the room. Yo, what's up, man? His expression was blankly pleasant. Still kneeling, I stroked the injured slats as one might reassure a pet about to be put down. This chair is broken. Did you have anything to do with it? Hell no. Of course not. Don't know anything about it. I sighed, never having mothered a small child. I'd no idea how you dealt with stonewalling denial in the face of incontrovertible evidence to the contrary. It would really be better if you confessed. Confessed what? I didn't do anything. Still, that's a real shame. That chair is out, man. But you can repair it, right? Like, super glue it or something. And your man here. He's like a genius in that basement. Know what I'm saying? <laughs> you don't repair high-end custom furniture with super glue, said Fletcher. Hey, be glad to help if I can, said Edison cheerfully. Run out tomorrow, get the repair stuff, whatever it is. Just say the word. The word or words. Fletcher looked Edison in the eye and my brother took, uh, took a step backwards. Or I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I'm such a fat fuck. Sweetie, I implored. 
I know you're upset. I'm sorry that I'm such a lard bucket loser that I've got nothing to do all day but plop my enormous ass in furniture I was expressly forbidden from sitting in. I'm sorry I'm so completely full of shit. Dad, don't. Cody wrapped her arms around her father's waist. Please, just shut up, please. Fletcher shook her off. I'm sorry that I pretend to be an internationally famous jazz musician when really I'm some broke, homeless, self-indulgent food junkie leeching off my sucker of a sister and ruining her whole family's life. I'm sorry my head is fat, my thighs are fat, my fingers and my toes are fat, and even my dick is fat, though my gut is so fat that I haven't actually laid eyes on my dick for the last two years. That's why when I destroy an, an irreplaceable, priceless object, I leave it delicately propped together for someone else to find because I'm not enough of a man to admit I broke it. As a strategy, the diatribe backfired. When Edison turned white and hustled blindly past us out the front door, not even grabbing his coat when it was below freezing, Cody abandoned her father and rushed after him. Sweetheart, it's a beautiful chair, but it's still a chair. I said, which you can't make whole again no matter how viciously you berate my brother. Don't you ever do that again. I drew on my coat, threw Cody's and Edison's over my arm, and set off to catch up with them. At that size, he wouldn't have gotten far. Thank you for that. It's um, this this book as you've as you've written about. Um, you wrote after the death of your brother um, from uh, obesity related um, deterioration, infection in the end, I think. Um, and I read. Uh, I actually got my copy of Big Brother, which I don't know if you can read it from here, but it has this sticker on it, only £2.99. So it was a bargain, big bargain. Um, I got it at St Pancras Station in London where you get off when you, uh, if you enter England on the train from the continent. Um, and I, you know, I didn't know it was going to be there. And it was sold, if you bought a copy of The, the Telegraph, the Sunday paper, um, you could also buy this as an add-on, um, plus a bottle of water for a, another pound. So Everyone it, bought it for the bottle of water. <laughs> yeah, I think you had to buy both. Um, and so it seemed um, to have been absorbed into a kind of public health campaign. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, um, and it was like, so like, like sort of medicine that you should 
Oh, no. Be, be good for you, you know, be good for yeah. you or your, you know, like something, um, and it says it on the front, glorious, fearless, possibly her best, possibly her very best, sorry. Um, so it has this this sort of character, as, as you do generally in stuff that's written about you, of mm -hmm. being, you know, going where no one will go kind of thing. <laughs> um, and... Um, but in the in the piece that you wrote in the Telegraph that uh, sort of you know gives some context, um, you wrote, "I'm painfully acquainted with the potential consequences of poor diet. Three years ago, when I was 52, so this was last year published, I lost my older brother to the complications of obesity. Towards the end, he must have been closing on 30 stone." By nightmarish coincidence, in late 2009, I filed the only column I'd ever written in which I mentioned him. The piece expressed discomfort with the fat pride movement and its claims that one could be healthy at any size, when I wasn't at all sure that feeling proud was the solution to my big brother's increasingly parlous medical condition. Later that very day, my parents rang with the news that he'd been taken to hospital. He died 10 days later. And, you know, in the wake of that terrible experience, you, you've written this novel. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, often in your books, there's, you know, there's a sense of, uh, you know, you're working the kind of boundaries of truth and fiction um, in, in often in very complicated ways. And here that uh, is, you know, more clearly... Um, you know, there's obvious, you know, in an the, there's, way there's an obvious autobiographical link to the subject matter. I, I get a little touchy when uh, people, therefore, take that the next step, which you're not doing, um, and and essentially charge that the the book itself is autobiographical. I mean, a, something happened in my family and in my life that gave me a sense of intimacy with this material. Um, and it, it gave me access to uh, how fat people are treated in a, in a way that I, I might have felt more distant from if, I, if it hadn't happened to my brother and I didn't know what it was like to go into a restaurant with someone who's that heavy and how they get treated and how the waiters look. It's, it's, this, it's, it's actually rather complicated because... It, they're pretending to not have a reaction, and you can see it anyway, uh, and you get seated at a crummy table. Uh, even the other restaurant pat patrons who may not be ordering any less than my brother would, uh, you can feel this little eye roll. Like, oh, there they go, eating again. <laughs> Which is what you do in restaurants. Um, it's it's why I wrote that this book when I did. Um, I'm not sure that I would characterize it as a an act of therapy. I would would say that there is an element of tribute. Mm -hmm. And my one discomfort with writing this book is that I did not want that tribute uh, exclusively be to be to my brother's weight. He was a an accomplished person. And I think that's one of the tragedies uh, that happens with when people get so heavy is that 
everything else they are gets taken away and and is not readily seen. And I, I, I witnessed with my own brother as he got heavier that he seemed to grow, ironically, ever more invisible uh, in, er, in every respect that actually mattered. And, and I think that's partly a function of the, of the way in which we have uh, over-signified the whole issue of body size. And I'm, on the one hand, it's, it is a, a novel about o- obesity and also other food and, you know, weight issues, because this is not just about, mm. uh, about obesity. But I am concerned, on the other hand, that we are, we're obsessing about it too much. So in some ways, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that even the subject matter of my own novel is regrettable. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's very in keeping with your whole, you know, your whole thing that you would, you know, critique your own novel as well. Yeah, it would be <laughs> typical of me. And, um, but I think that, um, I mean, and certainly in, in the book, um, which, I, you know, I have to say I was afraid to read. You know, really? As a fat person, I was mm. afraid. Were to, you afraid to that it would it. be painful or insulting? Both. Um, um, and actually, the, you know, the brother is the kind of, well, he's certainly the the extravagantly interesting Mm. figure in it, Um, you know, big in every way. Though difficult. Difficult, sure. You know, Um, he's not just this uh, paragon who happens to be fat and then it's unjustly persecuted. Yeah, but but, I mean, as as is clear in the novel and as you've written elsewhere in a kind of journalistic forum, um, the the kinds of questions and... um, the question of appetite mm-hmm. um, is, you know, is certainly not um, simply played out in the figure of, you know, the no. It's all over the book. It's, it, person. it's expressed no. in virtually all the characters, and that that was important to me. That it wasn't just a bunch of normal people with this, you know, outsize in every way uh, character who had a problem. Yeah. Everyone has a problem. It's, it's in some ways, everyone has some variation of the same problem. And that's because, uh, as you know, I've submitted in uh, journalism before, uh, I, I believe we've really reached the point where virtually everyone has an eating disorder. And we have a larger social eating disorder. This whole business of uh, all those cooking shows and all those fat shows, it's just... It's out of control. And it seems to be, I, as far as I can tell, it's getting worse. It's, um, uh, there was an interesting thing uh, I came across in a piece by Christine Smallwood in The New Yorker um, where she's talking about, uh, actually, you know, your whole sort of body of work, but, but also about Big Brother. And she says that, um, you know, your, your novels are interested in what she calls counterfactuals. Mm. Um, I thought that was an interesting observation. Yeah, she says, Shriver often seems less concerned with the events that take place in her novels than with how her characters imagine and mourn the events that do not. Mm. And, I mean, those of you who've read the book, um, you know, know specifically, you know, something of what that refers to, but, um, and I won't give away what, what you know, that, that is specifically for those of you who haven't read it, but, you know, it's there in Kevin 
to um, mm. the, the, unreliable, the unreliable narrator. Um, I'll say, no, I'll just say that. Um, and the sense that well, one of the things um, I think is very interesting about the way you you are developing a whole kind of, um, uh, you know, a sort of series of these unreliable narrators is um, that, you know, the, because the quality of your books, the quality of, of reading them is this, you know, very detailed sort of um, meticulous information rich, you know, lots and lots of detail, you know, you feel very connected and mm. very, it's very sort of cinematic writing in mm. that sense. Um, so you do automatically kind of come to trust what you're, what you're reading. Um, there's just too much sort of veracity mm -hmm. to, to not, and that's, that's, I mean, you need that. That's what you require to make the, you know, to make what you're doing work um, so that when you move in another direction, uh, it's, it feels... Um, it's a lurch. Yeah, it's a lurch. Yeah. And, you know, and various reviewers of various books of yours have mm -hmm. complained of these lurches. Um, you know, but they're literary lurches. They are. They're, they're very literary lurches. <laughs> and um, um, that should be a whole genre in itself, I think, the literary <laughs> lurch. That can perhaps be your genre. Um, that um, there's a sense that um, the whole experience of the book um, has set you off kilter as a reader. Um, that you, you I like be... that experience in literature. Mm. I mean, uh, yeah. you could certainly make the parallel uh, between the end of this book and the end of Atonement. I was aware of it when I chose it. I thought, oh my God, Ian McEwan's going to think I'm a copycat. Uh, and he's right. Uh, b but structurally, it worked for me. But I, I mean, certainly those of you who've read Kevin will recognize the same thing. There's yeah. a... Um, you get the rug pulled out from under you a little bit. But don't you want something to happen at the end of a book? And in some ways, one of the things, it, not just within the story, but some, I like the relationship between the reader and the, the character and the author to be disturbed a little bit. Mm. Uh, that's how you create this sensation of moment and of, of, of event and something really having occurred this seismic little seismic thing yeah that creates a a big effect and and that being knocked off your feet thing seems to bother some readers uh it's like we've been going along and i want to keep going along and then just stop yeah. you know that you know the, it's a little bit like those uh those treadmills and when you press stop it doesn't stop it goes very slowly, lets you off quietly, and everything's going to be fine, and you're not going to fall. And I don't like that kind of ending. And I think, you know, why... I don't even like that kind of treadmill. <laughs> when um, I think people don't like it or, you know, feel, uh, you know, unsettled by it or, you know, whatever, because it, it breaks the realist mode. Um, so you could, you could say various, you know, you could call it, you know, a kind of an anti-realist mm. tendency in it, or you could call it sometimes... A little bit, but I think that uh, certainly in the two major points where 
books that we're talking about. Mm. There's a, I, st I think it's still true, true to the interior world of the book. Yeah. And it's, it's, it still remains emotionally t true. And if you look carefully, you have been given the information all along that might not necessarily lead you to that c conclusion, but you can tell there are, you have been given signs. And therefore, there's a way in which the whole remains and and the the conceit of the of the fictional world has not been broken i don't think it it's actually so uh uh oh what's what is that expression oh never mind it took me so long to understand it now i can't even remember it um i don't know metafiction i don't know what yeah maybe metafiction that's um, not what i'm thinking of oh we could be here all night yeah <laughs> uh I I don't mean to be um, arty, arty and artificial and completely pull you out of the story and remind you, oh, this is a novel, so um, you know this is all fake anyway. Go away. It's not. It's not like that. It it's still part of the story, but it is an an enlarging or a changing of angle. Hmm. And I think those kind of those intimations you're talking about. I mean, yes, when you're at the end, you see what those intimations were. Postmodernism. But um, right. But um, well, I've I invited my postmodernism students. I don't know if any of you are here. Um, but I I but those intimations when you do not yet know where they lead. I mean, mm. certainly they certainly you register them, and I think particularly in Kevin, where it is more sort of cohesively, um, you know, within the frame. I think, you know, I knew halfway through mm. um, uh, or thought, thought halfway through. You know, I didn't cheat, but I thought, oh, that's what's happening. Um, and that quality of, you know, in Kevin, you know, it's the, the conceit is that it's sort of twice written. So, you know, you're reading reported, you're reading writing letters. Um, well, I mean, I, one of the things that, that, uh, that I like is the fact that... Uh, Fiction can uh, can have two contra the counterfactual yeah. that can hold two contradictory realities at once, and they can be equally real because that's the nature of fiction. You can create things that are different and side by side, and they're both real. And I did that uh, quite deliberately and formally in the post-birthday world. Have you read that one? I haven't. I've read. I'm not trying it. to put her on the spot. <laughs> I confess. I've I written haven't. enough books that you just can't e expect everyone to sit there reading but them. I but know what you're talking about. It is a. It's a parallel universe book which uh, describes a, a woman's uh, life, de de how it's and it splits off into two realities, and it depends on whether or not she kisses this guy in the first chapter, and. Uh, she, if she kisses him, she, she ends up marrying him. So it's a, really an exploration of what uh, uh, five years in her life are like, depending on which man she's with. And sometimes the differences are quite drastic and others quite subtle. It's a really fun book and an interesting exercise. Now, those realities are equally real, and they come together at, at the end, because I thought that was a formal requirement. Um, and it really irritated me that I got a 
ridiculous review in Publishers Weekly, which you will find prominently posted on the Amazon website of this book, <laughs> in which she, she, I know this person did not actually finish reading the book, and she said that it was about a woman who was, you know, uh, had a boring life and was fantasizing about something else. And that, it was a complete misreading. It didn't understand that counterfactual balance that they were both true. And I would say that of the, of the, the it's the same the, oh. thing in the end of Big Brother. Yeah. I'm not going to blow it in case you haven't read the book, but I will say generally that though there is a pulling the rug out from under you as the fiction reader, you still, you still got to read the story that gets a bit on, upended. So it still exists. Yeah. And you still had that experience as a reader of, of, of reading it. And that's the thing, and that's what I, I love, one of the things, one of the many things I love about fiction is this ability to, to upend, to even destroy, and yet to leave it, because you still get it, mm. right? And, and the, the way you can suddenly change a reader's viewpoint on, on a whole, whole story, like the way that mm -mm. Kevin ends. Mm. If you haven't read these books, this, this whole discussion is... Completely well, you just should read it. You just have um, to read it. You know, <laughs> you get with the program. But I like this idea that you can destroy and keep. Right? Yeah. I mean, I often say that to students. You know, when working on a novel or something, because the ending can tend to just completely dominate. You know, what what is made of it. I'm saying, yes. you know, all the rest that's there. That's still there. Yes, it's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I think this is a good moment to begin the. Um, you know, the part where you get to ask Lionel whatever it is you want to ask her. So, as Anna said at the beginning, there are these two mics. So, just approach, approach the mic. Um, I guess, how should we do this? Uh, just approach the mic. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think, because you have to go to the mic, perhaps it's you better don't. if people just start getting up and going to the mic, you know, because the mic won't come to you, you have to go to it. I'll be brave. It's actually only because it follows on from what you just started to discuss. So um, it, it was something I had been thinking of, even though I haven't read the most recent book and I'm about to enjoy it. Um, it is about that structure. I mean, I've traced that in several of your books, um, and I find it remarkable that you can find that balance. One of the points I guess I wanted to make is that um, I think there seems to be a kind of process of self-awareness because your work is so observational. And one of the things I found so striking about it is your capacity to look at contemporary relationships and speak about things that, for example, I feel. So it's the kind of truth-telling of a contemporary relationship. Um, and, and yet, uh, you have this formal structure for so many of the books, not just Kevin and presumably not what is going to happen in Big Brother, um, but in Post-Birthday World, for example, a very clear structure mm. at the end of which that coming together seems to me to be about a kind of process of self-realisation or of um, actualisation or something like that. And I wondered if you could talk about when that structure comes in for you, what the process is for your writing, is it something that you set initially and you see that framework in order to explore those relationships and arrive at that point? 
or is it something that you find really does emerge in the process of writing? That's one of the things I wanted the to ask. The structural elements that you're referring to, I, I would have arrived at before beginning the book. Uh, I don't consider myself an experimental writer. The structures that I avail myself of have been explored by other writers before. I never feel that the thrust of the book is, is, is especially in the direction of, of a formal experiment. I make formal decisions in the service of the story and uh, post-birthday is a good example. It wasn't just uh, this, uh, you know, there's, there's the first chapter and then you have two chapter twos and two chapter threes so that you you get these side-by-side realities. It, it wasn't merely a game. Um, I was very interested in looking at what difference it makes, whom you end up living with, and what influence they have on them. And I thought that, it, that as a literary experiment, it also mirrored the kind of mental experiment that we conduct in our heads when we're torn between two lovers. Isn't that a song? (laughs) Um, I almost hum it. Um, And therefore there was a reason to do it. You see what I mean? That that it it was justified by more than my simply um, wanting to play this little game. And that's why I make formal decisions that way and 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 it was the way to tell that story. And with Kevin, I chose an epistolary format because it served a number of storytelling purposes. Among other things, it helped me to disguise the ending. Um, and, I, and it helped to justify the, the act of the first person. It seemed, because making the letters literal... Uh, it wasn't just her writing in her journal or something or, or a literary conceit whereby you don't really know whether it's literally, literally written. So that, I just thought that was a, it was a useful device, but it, it certainly wasn't the point. If, if you're shy about approaching the mic, I mean, just stick your hand up and just talk very loudly. Um, this is being recorded for a podcast, so you know, we're trying to maintain good, you know, good enough sound quality for that, but... Uh, you know, I don't want to stop people um, asking things. So, who would like to ask something? Yep. No one else is going down. Sorry. Please do. Um, the two authors, um, no, apart from McEwen, who's English, the other authors you mentioned are all American, the sort of touchstones of, you know, Edith Wharton and and, uh, mm-hmm. and Melvin also. And yet, you you live in London, you said. Yes. Lucky thing. Could you talk a little bit about nationality and whether you're trying to see yourself as an American writer, or doesn't it matter, or? Do you want to set books in any country or just that angle, I suppose, really? Uh, yeah, I've, I've actually lived in majority in the UK since 1987. I lived for 12 years in Belfast before moving to London. I do go back to the United States pretty much every summer. Uh, my husband and I keep a, a house in Brooklyn for that purpose. And I think that in terms of keeping touch with the United States... Uh, if only as material, that's that's important. But I am um, 
I have only a, an increasingly hard time dealing with the torn loyalties because those torn loyalties, they're not just a matter of, of patriotism. It's, uh, it's language. It's w w whether you go to the bathroom or the loo. And I have to confess, I go to the loo. And so there's a way in which when I am uh, writing American characters now or writing a book set in the United States where I want a, what Americans will perceive as a neutral voice, uh, it's almost, it's subtly like writing in a foreign language. And I, uh, if there are any Americans in the audience, uh, please, I'm not trying to be pretentious. Oh, I, oh I've become so British. Um, and I have tried to preserve the better part of my American accent, and I still perceive myself as, a, as an American. But I, I am constantly inundated with uh, the cultural noise of the United Kingdom and not so much the United States. And I've even had uh, members of my readership in, in the UK say, well, why don't, you, why don't you set more books here? They feel a little neglected. Of course, the short answer to that is when I did, with the post-birthday world, the critical establishment took my head off. It was made very clear to me that snooker, for example, does not belong to me. Um, and that did put me off a little in terms of setting things in Britain. But the other, the other side of it is just practical. Uh, the, United States, the United States is five times as large, uh, so it's a larger readership. I've had a hard time, harder time uh, making inroads career-wise in the United States than in the UK, so it's, in some ways it's still you know, the, the career frontier. And Americans don't like to read about foreigners. So on all those fronts, it makes more sense for, if I'm a, a little on the fence, to, to, to set something in the United States. Now, the, the book that I just started is set in the United States because it's about the United States. It is about what happens to the United States, say, in 15 years hence. And you can't set a book about the United, what happens to the United States in the UK. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but it has been interesting to, um, to feel those loyalties get more and more t torn and I think I may, you know, the book after this, I may have to write something set in the UK just because that's where I spend three quarters of the year. And it's actually British news that makes me really mad. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to that one. Um. Uh, the themes in Kevin really are fairly critical of lots about America. And I wonder whether you see yourself as a very disappointed American citizen and as a therefore very what? a disappointed American citizen and that's in part why you live in oh. Europe, in Britain. Disappointed. Am I in a, a disappointed American citizen? Are you a refugee? Citizen? I mean, I think there might be lots of people in this audience who feel a disappointment at times about being an Australian citizen at certain mm -hmm. times. And there was talk years ago of people leaving the country to live somewhere more civilised, like maybe New Zealand. And I'm wondering, and maybe people feel the same way now about certain things that are happening in this country, and I'm just wondering whether your move out of America 
is because yeah I, I am disappointed I may not be disappointed for the same reasons you are disappointed in Australia or I may not be disappointed in the same aspects of, of the United States that so many people are I think there's a certain kind of moral failing that I forgive uh, because because no no I no idealized country or person ever lives up to that I mean look it's what happened with poor Obama I'm really very sympathetic with him because obviously he had all these expectations laden on him and he's just managing uh, and and under difficult circumstances so I I think that there are certain failings that I am forgiving of and there are others that I'm less forgiving of uh, partly because nobody else is ranting about it and I you know I've I'm I'm I get very impatient with the rhetoric of the United States about how free you are and all this li liberty stuff and you know leader of the free world but you know what it doesn't feel very free whenever you have to fill out your tax return even though you live you know ha across the Atlantic Ocean it doesn't matter you have to report every dime that you make in that country the f there's a kind of financial tyranny that I do not believe that the founding fathers intended. Uh, the, there's a regulatory tyranny that, that, I, that I don't think was, was intended. The, this whole thing of, of government having control and having a finger in every pie and commanding such a large proportion of the economy and telling you what to do and now you know, spying on your email pisses me off and I think is in flagrant violation of the concept of the country and for a person like me that concept is dead cool. It's a place, it was supposed to be a place where if you weren't hurting anyone else they would leave you alone and that is no longer the case and hasn't been for many decades. So okay and that's the way it is in Europe as well it's just as bad if you're going to be that way then be that way but don't at the same time get on your high horse and talk about how free your people are that's the kind of thing that gets me Sorry, I just wanted to ask another question about Kevin, which I know you're probably sick of, but I just wanted to know what your um, opinion was of the adaptation of the film and whether I you thought they that. got the... You speak a little... I just wanted to know what your opinion was of the adaptation of Kevin and whether they, you thought that they got it right and whether the characterization was right and how it was, whether, whether it was what you imagined the, it would be. Okay, the film of Kevin. Uh, I thought it was a lot better than it was that I imagined it was going to be because I of course was dismal about the prospects <laughs> for the whole project and that meant I mean I, I recommend universal dread in relation to everything and it's never as bad as you as, feared. As you said in an interview on this topic most things are terrible. Yes exactly. <laughs> most movies are terrible and it's not a terrible movie and I did think the casting was extraordinary. I thought Tilda was a great choice. I thought Ezra Miller did a wonderful job as the oldest of the Kevins. Though the very prospect of there being a plurality of Kevins is a little frightening. <laughs> and uh, I guess uh, 
I'd only critically, which I'm, I'm not supposed to, I'm under contract not to say anything critical, so I'm going to really take a risk here. Um, it was a little artier than I would have made it myself. I think it could have been as good a film and been a bit more inclusive, uh, a, little, a little more generous with its audience. It's an, a lot easier to understand that film if you've read the book and you, you shouldn't be writing, you shouldn't be making a film that you have to read the book. You're supposed to be able to go to, the, to see the film instead of read the book. All that red stuff I could have lived without. I thought it was heavy-handed. The, the tomatoes at the beginning. And, and, and furthermore... I've, I've read you give a much more favorable furthermore, account Furthermore, why be, why be coy about what she does for a living? It's an important angle on why she's so pissed off being stuck with a kid at home. She used to write a travel series and go all over the world. That's the only justification for the very, very beginning of that uh, that film and and she never you know it's never made clear until at least two thirds of the way through and, and then in passing it's easy to miss it so that's what I mean it's just a a little too a little too precious and I could have used a little more dialogue my dialogue <laughs> I really liked it when they used my dialogue and you will note that it's the scenes in which they lifted my dialogue whole, wholesale word for word that's what was in the trailer <laughs> but it it is it is a worthwhile film to watch. It is not it it is not wildly in violation of my imaginings or of my pictures of the book. And though they made up uh, uh, two or three scenes, for the most part, it's pretty faithful. Uh, so I really appreciated that. We might just have time for one more. Yeah, come on. Um, yeah, is there, so the, in books, the people, are they real, like real people, so there's only one way for them to be if you've got enough information on them, and one way, because it's fiction, but there's only one way that it is most real and feels true to you and other people? Only one way what? Like, you know how, like, at every point, you have to decide to do that or not do that. And as a person or as a fictional character or as an author? Writing about the character and as a person in life. You have to decide what to do. And as a, an author, you supposedly have the power to be creative. But mm -hmm. when you're writing about people who are real to you, are you kind of... You have to... They do what it is in their character to do. And when they don't, you have to have, like, some sort of explanation... Otherwise, he, like, there's no, like... Yeah, I, I think I'm, I know what you're asking. Uh, in some ways, uh, at least initially, a character is, is, is a set of rules. And you can, of course, slavishly adhere, adhere to this set of rules in writing the characters so that they constantly do, of course, what they would do. And you'll find that that's a, almost a sitcom version of... A character in sitcoms, you you rarely hear anyone do or say something that isn't within their character. Of course, so you can almost work out mathematically what they would do or say, uh, and that's a slightly mechanical version of character. I think that 
when you loosen that up a little bit, then you you have you have a character behave the way, of course, they would, but but then they can violate those rules, and that can give moments a lot of power. It's not that conscious either. I'm not, not sitting there saying, but that breaks the rules, so that, you know. But uh, I think of it more when whenever you're thinking about character or trying to design character. You basically have to remember what it's like to be you, or uh, it's you don't sit there being your character and having certain rules, and you don't violate them. It you ch- you are capable of behaving differently in different circumstances, and sometimes you surprise yourself, and sometimes you surprise other people who are with you. So, I mean, it, it is a little tricky in fiction to balance this uh, strict definition which can be so confining as to be unrealistic, almost cartoon-like and formlessness right? So that when a character can be anything and do anything then they really aren't a character anymore. So I don't know. I I just know that that, there's always that tension. But that that, successful literary characters don't obey their own rules not for the whole book there's a great sort of satirical comedy about all that in big brother i think in in to do with joint custody the sitcom that is the pandora's well their father's their father's sitcom i I loved all that stuff in the book the the television stuff yeah and the you know the the father who who rings up and says, you know, Breaking Bad, it's never going to fly. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, you know it's, it's hopeless. You know, it's a hopeless setup. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, what a chemistry teacher who, who becomes a drug dealer. Give me a break. You know, <laughs> and you said that you're, you're waiting for the, for the HBO miniseries of one of your books. You, know, you, you want that to happen. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I do, who, actually. Who wouldn't want that to happen, you know? <laughs> um, were you going to do a final? I forget, sorry. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, yes, I'm sorry, I forgot the format as usual. <laughs> I just wanted to um, thank you both, of course, for um, what's been a really, um, as promised, engaging and relaxed uh, conversation, which has seemed enjoyable from from the seats there, and I hope pretty enjoyable I had a ball. I don't know from your seat. Um, particularly enjoyed Lionel's accounts of her hard-working, prodigious output, someone who can relaxedly talk about the book she'll write after the book she's writing. <laughs> um, depending That's on the way you talk when you just signed a two-book contract. <laughs> <laughs> and also very generous in her kind I of tough and funny bit. disclosures about her writing practice and writing life. Um, depending on your sort of psychological profile, you'll be feeling either aspirant or a slacker at the moment, I suspect, after 90 minutes with Lionel. Um, but uh, one way or other, I urge you to go upstairs and get in a queue for signing and buying books um, if you want to have the literary rug ripped out from under your feet. But before you do that, please thank Kate and Lionel. Yeah.